0: From Selma, Alabama, would you please welcome storyteller Miss Catherine Tucker Windham?
1: I can't believe I'm 92 and but I am, and uh, my father said to me, "But he says that when you're building your life, the most important things are the four Ls. And the first L is listening, and it's a rare thing these days, listening, listening to the human voice, listening to one person, talking to another person, listening we have forgotten how to listen, how to sit down and talk and have a good time listening. My dad said, listen. God gave you two ears and one mouth, and he expected you to use them in that proportion. <laughs> and the next L is learning. You have to learn something different all your life. Don't ever quit learning and laughing. It's the third L, he said. We've all got to laugh, laugh at ourselves, laugh at something every day. The world is a magical, wonderful place, he says, but we need to laugh together. Don't laugh at people, my father said. You laugh with people, and you can never hate anyone you've really laughed with. Laughter binds people together. The most important L is loving, loving, that God put us here to love each other. To enjoy each other, to help each other, to laugh together, to learn together, to listen together, but to love each other. And there's nothing that says, I love you, more pleasantly and more plainly than storytelling. Everybody here has stories that you need to tell, and now is the time to do it. Tell stories and tell each one with love, ending with, I love you. I
2: love them. Thank you. To Catherine Tucker-Windham, speaking at the 2010 Alabama Storytelling Festival at the age of 92 about the importance of stories. I'm Amy Antonucci, and I'm here to welcome you to True Tales Radio. We're coming to you live from WSCA's West End Studio, 909 Islington Street in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. True Tales Radio which is the recipient of the 2016 New Hampshire Magazine Award for the Best Storytelling Program in New Hampshire. In case you haven't heard that yet. And we have been a place for local people to share their own true stories with our listeners and live audience. And tonight we have six storytellers on the theme of no theme (laughs) open theme night which did not mean we had to explain this the theme wasn't openness it was there was no theme over the years we've put out all these themes with the idea of kind of getting people thinking you know because people say oh I don't have a story and say well what about vacations oh I do have a good vacation story so we really like having the theme but then now and then we hear from people "I have a great story and it's never fit into your themes so thus was born the open theme night and here we are (laughs) All right, so uh, we also want to welcome the crew from and viewers of Portsmouth Public Media TV. They're taping here tonight, so you can watch True Tales on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. on Channel 98, or you can stream it at ppmtvnh.org slash live. Our underwriters, who are we, we are so grateful to, are... Jan Hansen, who believes in the unique value of having an independent community radio station in the seacoast. Pat Spaulding, who believes in stories for grown-ups on True Tales Radio and who is curious to know, hey, what's your story? And Emily Spaulding, author of Red Clay Girl, who believes that when you share your story, you never know who you might touch. So tonight... Each of our storytellers will be introduced by MC Pat Spaulding. They will then share a true story from their lives. They've each been given t- up to 10 minutes. It doesn't have to be exactly 10 minutes. It's up to 10 minutes-ish for their telling. Um, there's not going to be rating or judging or voting or anything like that. We are just here to sit back or step up and listen to great stories <coughs> born here in our own community. Now, I pass the mic on to our MC, Pat Spaulding, to introduce our storytellers.
3: Thank you, Amy. First up, we have Kathy Wolf, who resides in Kittery Foreside, Maine. She spent her summer weeding, reading, and burying her cat's hunting trophies in her backyard. (laughs) Kathy also traveled to too many gatherings, including a silent meditation retreat, which she sorely needed in preparation for a 50th high school reunion in sweltering Des Moines, Iowa. That experience prompted her desire to visit Iceland someday. (laughs) Kathy says... With a little luck and the right actors, the small dramas in life can slip into comedy. Maybe a little dark, but then that's the way I've always liked my comedy. So let's hear more about that style of humor in Kathy's story The Cowboy, The Angel, The Mad Scientist, and Me.
4: I've shrunk. I was in the basement of Mass General Hospital. Actually, it might have been the sub-basement, or the sub-sub-basement. It was a long elevator ride down. I had been wheeled into this room, and then the fellow who pushed me in there left. The room was completely empty except for a padded exam table in the middle. The walls are cement, painted a lurid Yellow. There's nothing there, not even a hand sanitizer, no sink, no little happy faces, nothing. It felt like it could be an interrogation room, and maybe they wanted to keep the walls blank so when the torture had the blood splashing on them, they could wash it down fast. But actually, I wasn't there for interrogation. I was there for a clinical trial. Someone was going to come into this room and inject a bunch of radiation into my uh, abdomen, they were going to do this because that radiation was allegedly going to kill any ovarian cancer cells that had the audacity to still be hanging out after my entire abdomen had been scraped out in surgery followed by six months of chemotherapy. Um, <coughs> excuse me. It uh, it hadn't been easy uh, to decide this, but ovarian cancer... Uh, can be something that really hangs on a well. while. After I had had the initial surgery six or seven months earlier, I went to see my oncologist and she said, not to worry. Chemo. We'll take care of it. We'll get rid of it. And I went, ah, and then she said, and then it'll come back. No. I said, what? No. She said, ovarian cancer is like dandelions. You can pull them out, all of them one year, and then they're back. I went home, went into chemo, sat bald in my backyard that summer looking at dandelions. (laughs) I thinking, I hate dandelions. (laughs) Anyway, this was now December, and uh, I had been offered this clinical trial. It was extremely difficult for me to say yes to this trial because it involved putting radiation in my body, and not that long before, well, actually, 20 years before. I'd been very involved in the anti-nuclear movement. I'd even gone to jail. Well, National Guard Armory, and it was like jail. They kept us locked up for two weeks anyway. Um, And I I still had friends, and myself too, who argued with dentists about taking (laughs) x-rays. But I did a lot of research. I went to talk to another doctor who I had to find outside the Harvard Mass General complex in Boston. That's not easy. But I finally found an oncologist at Mount Auburn Hospital. I went to see him, and he said, I have a good feeling about your cancer. That is, uh, nobody had said that. That felt great. I floated all the way back to North Station on the subway, and I don't know if any of you have been around that area, but there's a roast beef shop right next door. No meat, no sugar, no alcohol had crossed my lips for seven months. I bought a great big roast beef sandwich and just didn't know it. <laughs> it tasted so good. But well, there, there was another reason too. I decided not just that doctor's opinion to go ahead with the trial, and that is that um, in my research, my stage of ovarian cancer, which was three C, had about I had about a thirty percent chance to be around five years from then. So I figured radiation, ovarian cancer. That's a toss-up. I'll go ahead and do it. So here I am in this room waiting for um, whatever's going to happen. And the door swings open, and in walks a cowboy. I mean, literally, a cowboy. The man had a big cowboy hat on. He had a black waxed mustache. He was wearing a bolero around his neck and a red cowboy shirt. He had pressed blue jeans, pointy-toed boots, and a giant belt buckle that since I was sitting in the wheelchair and he was standing up, I could see very clearly, was an angry looking eagle surrounded by an arc of atoms. Over his, over his shoulder, he had a Naga hide bag. And not long after he got in the room, he opened the bag and pulled out a wand, and I realized he had a Geiger counter. He said, Hi, howdy, how you doing? I'm in a hospital. Sometimes people ask that and they really want to know. I didn't think he was one of them, so I said, Fine. Um, He went around the room running his Geiger counter. I didn't hear anything, which was, I thought, a good sign (laughs) at that point. And um, then the door opened again, and this woman walked in who looked, she looked like an angel without her wings. She was dressed in in white. She was extremely pale. She had very light, thin blonde hair. Even the fluorescent light shone through it. She did not smile. She nodded at the cowboy. In her arms, her outstretched arms, rested a large metal box. She t- walked, and I swear almost backwards, to the wall, the far wall, and stood there holding this box. I thought, I think I slipped into a Pee-wee Herman movie. <laughs> <laughs> and and the, meanwhile, the yellow of the walls should seem to be vibrating a bit. I mean, that got kind you would have seen in a Pee Wee Herman movie and then I thought well I had had surgery the day before the anesthesia might still be there it was what they call second look surgery it was necessary before I could be a candidate for the clinical trial so um, they had put a port in my abdomen at the time so at least I didn't have to be in that room nervous about a needle which I hate needles I I didn't have to worry about that because they could just go in through this little plastic thing So these guys are standing there, and then finally the door swings open and rushes in a very short man with a bald head and a little bit of gray hair. He was the doctor. He's staring at this oversized watch as he comes through the door. He has his white coat on buttoned wrong, so the collar's up here, and making him look like he's slightly tilted. And then there's this big splotch of very fresh-looking egg yolk right there on his uh, chest. Very. <laughs> there was another smaller splotch of egg yolk at the corner of his mouth, and I thought, well, that's why he's late. <laughs> so he he barely looks at me. He says, Okay, get up on get up on the table." So I get out of the wheelchair, pull my Johnny tight, and get. It up on the table and the angel steps forward with the box the doctor opens the lid he pulls out a hypodermic needle it looked like it was more for a cow than a person and he um, oh and meanwhile the cowboy's running around the Geiger counter and as soon as the box opens, it starts going tick, 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 like that and so the doctor puts the hypodermic needle into the port in my abdomen and injects it pulls it out puts it back in the box box closed angel leaves <laughs> Carrying it the way she carried it in. Doctor leaves. Geiger counter man still having fun going around the room, the cowboy. And then he leaves and he says, don't worry, somebody will come get you soon. I go back and sit in the wheelchair and I'm waiting and I'm waiting. And I'm thinking, I want to be in their acting troupe. I want a costume something better than a hospital Johnny something they all had costumes I want a red velvet gown And, and so I can lay on this table close to my end but miraculously saved it wasn't the first time I had tried to add a little drama to my cancers if it didn't have enough uh, when I got the chemo, I had lost my hair, so I had to get a wig, which is great. Insurance pays for it. I got a red shag Jane Fonda wig. <laughs> <laughs> and, and because I had lost 25 pounds rather quickly, and I was incredibly vain about it, I thought, I'm going to put on some spandex and this wig and false eyelashes, and I'm going to go down to Wally's. For those of you who don't <laughs> remember Wally's, it was a biker bar on da- um, Daniel Street, I think. <laughs> Uh, not far from where the Cafe Petronella was, and probably most of you don't remember that either. Anyway, it was in downtown Portsmouth. And I had so much fun sitting in my garden, trying not to look at down the lions, fantasizing on going to a biker bar in my red wig. Problem was, every time I got out of the house trying to wear the wig, I would have a hot flash because I'd had, like, instant menopause from the ovarian surgery. Anyway... So finally, the orderly came and he put me in the chair and took me back up from the sub or sub-sub basement to my room. Yes, weird thing in hospitals—you can walk just fine, but they never let you. If you're enrolled there, they (laughs) just—you get the service of getting pushed around. So I get back up on the floor, and the orderly, of course, disappears. And the nurse says, "You can get dressed now and go home." I get up out of the chair. I wow! I walk into uh, (laughs) into my room and I feel this wetness going down my leg. I think I'm leaking radiation on your floor. Shh, she says. Lay down on the bed. I'm not tired. Lay down anyway on the bed on your back. So I figured she wanted me to keep the stuff in there. The guy, uh, the cowboy shows up. He's got the Geiger counter again. He is not smiling. He says, "I can't believe this happened again. I thought the doctor had. Uh, it did it happen before? And I thought the doctor had a better bandage." And The Geiger counter didn't make much noise, but I'm sitting there thinking, yes, hazmat suits, yellow tape, evacuation. (laughs) Didn't happen. The nurse came in, put on a better bandage. I got dressed. I went home. Um, I understand there there wasn't a whole lot of follow-up. It wasn't necessary except getting tested to see if the cancer ever came back. Um, I understand they never went ahead with this, that it stopped after the second level clinical trial, which is what I was in. But, I never had my cancer come back, and it's been 18 years. Wow. I have no idea if it has anything to do with, uh, with that test, but I really hope that the cowboy, the angel, and the mad doctor kept their act together, because I'm sure I'm not the only one who, in the middle of a life tragedy drama, needed a little bit of surreal, absurd comedy. <laughs> you got to laugh, don't you? <laughs>
3: Yes, we do. We got to laugh. Thanks, Kathy. And uh, 18 years. Yes. Yes.
5: yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, this is my real hair. <laughs> yeah.
3: Next up, we have Angela Matthews. She's been living in New Hampshire since the early 1970s when she took a job as a teacher in the Portsmouth School Department. After her career in education, she worked for six years for Star Island. Corporation, then retired in December of 2014. Now living in Rollingswood, Angela spends a lot of time gardening in one season or shoveling snow in the other. She claims to spend far too much time traveling back and forth to Portsmouth. Her story tonight involves travel tales that she finds to be quite humorous. Let's hope we do, too. It's, t- oh <laughs> it's <my> title
6: is <laughs> that <does. laughs> Yeah, let's hope so. <laughs> um, so, uh, shifting gears, a little lighthearted stuff here. My photo album, much like anyone's, are the chronicle of years of moments. The birthdays, anniversaries, weddings, graduations, travel. Sometimes the photos are so much more enjoyable, in retrospect, than the moments were themselves. (laughs) The emotional content is flattened a little from 3D to a static image, everyone smiling and happy. Holding the picture can be so much more fun sometimes than holding the moment. Travel snapshot stories are among my favorites. They conjure all that escapes the click of the shutter. There's one of me and my college roommate, Anne, uh, in the fall of 1969 when she and I traveled in Europe together and stayed with distant relatives of mine in Aliano, Italy. The photo captures us scrubbing our clothes on washboards, in matching tubs, in front of a fully functioning washing machine (laughs) and lovely matching dryer (laughs) covered in plastic to keep them clean. Earlier on that same trip, we hooked up with my cousin Eddie who was stationed in Germany at the time. His tour, tour of duty was frequently interrupted in fact by friends and family who showed up at his army base expecting him to be a tour guide. I was not traveling light. I came complete with matching Samsonite presented as a graduation gift. <laughs> Yeah, think about it. 1969, it should have been a backpack. <laughs> the, su- the suitcase, a slightly smaller overnight bag, and the Piester is a cosmetic case. Everything filled to the brim with the things that I thought I would need for three months abroad. This was in the day when one could actually fly, fly with multiple bags and not be have them weighed or have to pay extra. My exposure and expectations of such travel was limited to the observations of the rich and famous, despite carrying the Bible of my generation, Europe, on $5 a day. (laughs) And I was traveling with a list of names of all the people that I had to get gifts for. As the trip wore on, I began accumulating an array of boxes that then had to be tied together and added to the weight of the matching Samsonites, which, of course, were not made with the convenience of wheels. For many years, Eddie and I regaled the family at holiday parties, reenacting the story of the three of us, Eddie, Anne, and I, at the cavernous train station in Rome, where we made our way in relay fashion with all our belongings, from the entrance of the station to the departure platform, and from the departure platform onto the train. Two of us, Eddie and me, went ahead with a partial load while Anne stood guard over the remainder. Once on the platform, I remained with our things and Eddie returned to bring Anne and the rest of the loot to me. We probably looked a lot like an episode of The Three Stooges and thankfully the only known images are the memories in our head. Now, another important detail of this story is that we understood very little Italian. Just as we finally assembled on the platform, there was an announcement about our train north to Switzerland. That much we understood. Then we noticed our fellow passengers leaving our boarding location and rushing to a platform several platforms away. Ah, We groaned, but then we began the shuttle of our belongings, figuring we probably had enough time and now we had to get them off to the new platform. Eddie went with Ann and half the stuff and got her settled into a cabin, helping her stow everything. Then he came off the train and back to me. As Eddie cleared the turn of that platform, he heard what sounded distinctly like the train (laughs) leaving the station. (laughs) In fact, it was. In a panic, Eddie rushes back toward the departing train. Fortunately, he was intercepted by a conductor who explained with some hand signals and gestures that that was the front half of the train, the 50-car train, that would be going to Switzerland. Of course, with Anne and half our stuff. The second half of train, the train was leaving from the platform where I was with the other half of our stuff. <laughs> Phew, Eddie was immensely relieved. But Anne was on the departing train by herself with half of our stuff, no ticket, and no passport because we had all of that. Or her travel companions. Panic. It wasn't until 30 minutes out of Rome that Anne was now openly sobbing and certain she would never see us again. She was reunited with Eddie in the corridor of the 50 passenger cars. She was so far out of the train station when the two sections of the train were connected, she had no idea where she was, and worse, where we were. But now, together again, we resumed the shuttle back to me that would finally reunite all of our belongings and our travelers in the same cabin on the same section of the train, and even before we arrived in Switzerland. So Eddie had a penchant for being at the center of many such stories, Or maybe it was just a glutton for punishment. But another favorite of mine was of him and my sister Annie, who also enjoyed a European vacation together. They were traveling in Bulgaria, and they stayed in an elegant inn for one of their overnights. Things being relatively inexpensive for American travelers, they splurged and had breakfast in that dining room on the day of departure. As they pointed to each item on the menu, the waiter shook his head. Saying da. Well, they continued to point at each item until they came to a nod of the head and a net, whereupon they said, two please. They sat waiting and waiting and waiting until about a half hour later when several waiters pushing carts of breakfast items came toward their table. In Bulgaria, the shake of a head and a da means yes. The nod of a head and a ne means no. no. (laughs) And yes, they ordered the entire menu
5: except
6: except for the one thing that wasn't on the menu that morning. (laughs) It was to their relief and great fortune. And you know, imagine what those Bulgarians thought of these crazy Americans. It was to their great relief that at that very moment, the dining room filled Quite ironically, with a group of Japanese tourists who were treated to this lost in translation breakfast buffet,
5: <laughs>
6: which Eddie and Annie graciously shared with them. Another favorite snapshot involves a roots trip with my mother. She was very blue one Christmas when I called her, and it was about the unlikelihood of ever seeing where her parents were born. Nonsense, I said. I'll take you to Italy. We'll go together. We did. We arrived in Milan and rented a car. I'm going to interject here. The Italians are gracious, slow-moving, thoughtful, and lovely people Till they get behind a wheel of a car. (laughs) And then then good luck. I mean, it was crazy driving in Italy. I was terrified, and I'm not a slow driver, but I was terrified. So anyway, um, we arrived in Milan. And rented a car, with Bethleh being our first stop on the Grand Tour. My grandfather was born there in 1894. When he was, and when he was 16 years old, he immigrated to New York to live with his 18-year-old brother. I can, you know, I can't imagine. They're like teenagers, and they're headed to another country, you know, not like to friend, spend an overnight with some friends. His brother died of influenza not long after he arrived. Another story. but I just, you know, wow, so brave. As it happened, now we're back in Italy, every hotel in Milan was booked solid for a convention that week, so we had to find a place to stay in another town, tiny town of Bobbio, 40 minutes and a mountain away from Bethela. The next day, as we made our way up and down the mountain into the ancestral village, I was stunned at the size of the city sprawling across the valley below and up the opposite mountainside. I felt my heart sink. How would we ever find our relatives in this town? We crossed a small bridge onto what seemed to be the main street and we pulled into a gas station for some gas. Undaunted, my mother, in halting Italian, told the attendant she was looking for her family. She asked if he knew where the Rosconis lived. I rolled my eyes and wondered what he must be thinking, these crazy Americans on a roots trip. (laughs) See, he says, Ci sono due donne che vivono accanto in questi edifici lì. My mother smugly translated to me, her doubting daughter, yes, there are two Rusconi women who live in next door to each other in those two buildings over there.
5: <laughs>
6: so we walked down the street. We rang the bell on the first apartment building with my mother speaking in halting Italian, and a wonderful woman, who had married my grandfather's nephew, ran down the stairs. She didn't even wait for my mother to finish the message. She banged on that door buzzer. The door opens, and she's running down the stairs to greet us. She was so excited to meet my mother, a woman whom she'd only known through letters and stories and pictures. The next few hours were the best of the trip, including a tour to the house where my grandfather was born, and a trip to the cemetery where our ancestors lay resting in what looked more like a villa of sparkling white gates with a corridor along a long mausoleum and grave plots of white alabaster beds complete with photographs of the dearly departed neatly affixed to the headstones in weatherproof glass. Now, another interesting thing about this particular trip was that it had a rough beginning. You see, we were supposed to fly out of Boston to Paris on September 13, 2001, mm. two days after 9-11. It was my first, but not my last, brush with travel planning in times of cataclysmic events. In the fall of 2010, I began researching a Mediterranean cruise that would visit the ancient sites along stops around the Mediterranean in Greece, Turkey, Jordan, Israel, Egypt, Tunisia. That plan was interrupted by the Arab Spring, and I've yet to put that back on track. Last fall, I began planning a trip that would take me to France and then to Turkey, completely unaware that only ten months later there would be a political coup in Turkey. Tomorrow, I'm going to be flying out on this trip my friends tell me that maybe the State Department should check in with me when I begin my travel planning so, 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 that, so that they'll know where to look for the next eruption. As for me, who or no p- who, I'm sticking with my plans and thinking forward to looking back on snapshots of this trip and the stories that it will hold.
7: Thank you.
2: The time is 7.01. You are listening to Portsmouth Community Radio. That's WSCA LPFM 106.1 FM. This is True Tales Radio. I am Amy Antonucci, and here comes Pat Spaulding to introduce our next
3: storyteller. Thanks, Angela. Um, Angela has to leave, so good story. Thank you. Annette Slattery is up next. Originally from Germany, she married a Midwesterner 18 years ago and somehow managed to find her way to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, where she and her husband have lived for the last two years. Annette has always been a dedicated storyteller to whomever was willing to listen. After being guaranteed of a listening audience right here, this will be the second story that she has told at True Tales Radio. It comes with a warning. Don't Try This at Home, and is titled Meeting People. Come on up, Annette. It's the year
8: 1990, and I was having a great time. I was 20 years old, and I had just moved from the small town that I grew up in to a mid-sized city in Germany to go to university. I was not particularly interested in that liberal arts program that I started, History and German Studies, but I sensed um, that my parents um, would be supportive of this uh, project because they were teachers and um, this would be a promising choice for me. I had done well in these subjects, and I had to start somewhere. So life in the new city was great. It was really exciting to have so many activities compared to my small town before. I was um, going to discussion groups, I was going to pub meets, I was um, um, going to stage shows, I made new friends, it was fantastic. However, in the romance department, I was a late bloomer. I had tried to bloom a few years earlier, when I had a huge crush crush on one of my brother's friends, but when he finally noticed my clumsy attempts and noticed clumsy attempts and showed interest, I didn't know what to do with him, and that was that. (laughs) In the new city, I quite liked one of my fellow students. We were always hanging out and laughing, but it never went anywhere. Years later, I heard that he was now quite happily coupled with another guy. And I thought, oh, <laughs> with a somewhat light bulb-shaped exclamation point. <laughs> On the weekends, I like to go dancing with my girlfriends. I didn't quite understand how to go there and meet guys, but I, I like to um, talk to my friends, I like to dance. And uh, maybe you run into people who didn't really show up for lectures during the day at university. That happens. So um and the night I'm talking about now is on this night I was wearing an outfit which I had sewn myself. I had a blue polka dot blouse and some velvet pink velvet bike shorts like pants. And the important part is that I didn't hadn't sewn any pa- uh, any pockets into those pants. <laughs> <laughs> so um it was an odd outfit, but um, I was riding on my bike home at 1 o'clock at night. And the important part is that um, I was holding my um, money in one hand, I was holding my keys in the other hand, and I was holding onto the handlebar of the bike, and I couldn't use the brakes because I was I'd occupied my hands. But I grew up next to the Netherlands. I have, have been riding my bike everywhere forever. And I was confident that I could stop at any time while holding on to my valuables. (laughs) Interestingly, I don't remember what I did with my money and my keys while out at the club. Had I been holding on to them awkwardly all night long? (laughs) Maybe I put them in one of my friend's purses? Why didn't I have a purse? (laughs) My 20-year-old self is a mystery to me. The second strike against me on that night was that my light had stopped working. It just <laughs> happened, so I just, oh no! But I still had to get home, so I was going fast, uh, without braking abilities, without light, but <laughs> confidently. So, and on the last stretch, I had to go up a hill, and but I didn't slow down, even though I saw that the street was partially closed off by a barricade. <laughs> On the right-hand side, there was a parked car, a convertible, but I didn't pay any attention to it. I just had to overtake the car on the left. I had to go then, to, uh, <laughs> I had to go by the barricades on the right and up the hill. <laughs> just as I was about to overtake the car, it suddenly started to turn around with a sudden acceleration that sports car drivers are known for. <laughs> I heard the wheel screeching. Within a split second, it blocked my path and I crashed into the driver's door. I flew off the bike, across the door and landed in the laps of two stunned young dudes. (laughs) (laughs) After a moment of shock, I locked eyes with the one in the passenger seat. He said something like, girls falling from the sky, what a night. What could have been the best how we met story ever was foiled by my immediate fear of getting blamed for this accident and having to pay for some rich guy's car door. (laughs) So I don't even remember what those two looked like, if they were interesting or not. I just said I had to get out of there. I hopped up and out, not without putting the blame squarely on their shoulders. (laughs) Didn't you see me? You got to watch out. I wasn't hurt and my bike was fine as well, so I was gone before they could say anything else to me. <laughs> when I told that story to my friends at the next party, one of them had the great idea that I could use that method for meeting the Dutch Crown Prince, who would be visiting Germany in a few weeks. <laughs> we discussed how those royal carriages were way, uh, way high up and for excellent reasons that were very clear to us now. So you'd probably need a high-wheel bicycle for th- in order for that to work. Now, my friends, were getting really into this. Where would we get such a bike? Flea market, guy with a welding unit, or steal from a museum? <laughs> <laughs> to my credit, even though I didn't want to spoil their fun, I immediately dismissed this plan in my head. I had no affection for this boring-looking crown prince I knew nothing about. And more importantly, I knew that doing this on, pers- on purpose would be assault. And I also realized that I had committed a hit and run that night. (laughs) A few months later, I dropped out of that liberal arts uh, program (laughs) Uh, because I just couldn't get into the nitty-gritty of those topics, and I had to cut my losses. I was worried that my parents would be quite disappointed by this, and especially my dad, because he had never had such opportunities for school. But he's a huge Francophile, so I plan to redeem myself somewhat by working and saving up to go to France for a semester-long language program that a friend of mine had recommended. Plus, learning a foreign language is never wrong when you have some time on your hands. At least, such is a common wisdom in my family too bad for my dad that it was at that French language program that I met my future husband, who is not only not a native French speaker, but an American. (laughs) It was a little bit bad for me, too, because by hanging out mainly with the English-speaking students, I didn't learn as much French as I could have. On the bright side, my English really improved. (laughs) A lot. (laughs) True to my usual modus operandi and comfort zone. Even though I had a big crush on him, my husband and I didn't become a couple uh, during those months. We, we reconnected years later when I came to the U.S. on holidays. He happened to live in Los Angeles, which was where my guided group tour ended. And all of a sudden, things in the romance department became, e- became easy. We both decided that we wanted to be with each other and with a big pragmatic shuff by the U.S. Immigration Service, we got married a year later.
5: Mm
8: -hmm. Nowadays, it happens quite often that people ask us how we met, probably because it's obvious when I start talking that we grew up in different continents. And while our story is solid and not too boring, I always wish a tiny little bit that I could start my answer with, it was a dark night and I was riding home on my bike. <laughs> <laughs> like the wind, when suddenly.
5: <laughs> <laughs>
3: well done, Annette. Thank you. Sylvia Olson has lived in six different states and claims that she likes the new ones best. New Jersey. New York, New Hampshire. (laughs) While working in western New York, she devoted much of her life to public service and social justice. Today, Sylvia is relaxing in New Hampshire, climbing mountains, walking the beach, and writing short stories and novels based on true life experiences and the people she came to know. Tonight, it sounds like she'll tell us about a few people that she did not come to know in her story Over 50 isn't nifty in the dating game.
7: (laughs) A walk in the woods with Bob, dating one more guy over 50. I'm lost in the woods with my date. I'll call him Bob. We're wandering around, following a chain chain of small lush grassy clearings like putting greens maybe there's three or four of them maybe only two not sure how many because we're lost (laughs) each putting green comes complete with high-tech deer stand i have a creepy feeling of being watched stalked just a vulnerable piece of meat okay we're not really lost just confused or at least bob is and he's the man, he's in charge. There's really no more than 10 or 20 acres of woods, and it's Bob's backyard. (laughs) Or, Or it used to be until he sold it to his neighbor, a guy with a lot of money and his own ideas about hunting. Bob had no idea his woods was now a deer killer's paradise, that is, if the deer are fooled by circular putting greens and metal ladders. Bob has a GPS in his hand, and it tells us that we are walking in circles, which I already knew, and Bob told me I should buy one earlier so I don't get lost on the road. They only cost about $100, not a bad price in Bob's opinion. I, I use maps when I'm driving and I never get lost. Bob's staring at the GPS and doesn't know what to do with it. It only tells us where we've been and not where we need to go. Bob's about 5'7", a small man. I can look him right in the eye. He has a head of longish, glossy, dark hair and a big mustache. Kind, kind of likes to toss his head back and push the hair out of his eyes. Shake it a little and run his fingers through it like a singer in a seventies hair band three, three dog night maybe and and he's old enough to be that singer. he's about fifty five He's got a deep booming voice because he's that kind of guy he wants to be heard, and because he only quit smoking five years ago. <laughs> Bob just wanted to take me for a little walk in the woods. A romantic walk, maybe. I I told him I liked hiking, and I guess this was his idea of a hike. It's a dense, kind of ugly, fourth-growth woods. The smallest trees are kind of crammed together. Lots of thick, weedy undergrowth. On top of a hill near Concord, New Hampshire. (laughs) This is an Internet date. Bob had a post on Craigslist. He was looking for an adventurous woman who would like to go sailing out of Rye Harbor. <laughs> I, I live in Portsmouth, so I thought, well, I'd give it a shot. Close to home, something interesting to do. And I have met some normal men on Craigslist. Unpleasant, maybe, or just a poor match, but but normal. And and Bob Bob isn't abnormal. He's just kind of average, but he also doesn't live anywhere near Portsmouth. (laughs) Bob is in the process of telling me his life story and providing his resume. It's all he's done for the entire date other than asking me if I can cook and carry on a conversation since sailing consists of a lot of sitting around. He's never going to find out if I can talk since he's doing all the talking. Bob's telling me I was last girlfriend dumped him because, well, he won't exactly say, but he'd only broken up with her two weeks ago, and he wanted her back, apparently, but on his terms, not hers. <laughs> and Bob was married twice. His last wife left him up there on the hill, but he didn't say why. Bob. Bob also had a number of ex-girlfriends, and he was still friends with at least one of them. He rented her a room in his house, and he seemed to like that, but she moved out. <laughs> Bob is also bleeding money, he tells me. The real estate market is tanking, and that's Bob's business. He also made the mistake of sinking most of his money in real estate. He, can't, he couldn't afford to sell anything, and he couldn't afford the mortgages either. And I'd seen his house inside and outside ugly, bare, and modern, surrounded by a lot of lawn and all that woods that wasn't his anymore. During our walk, he offered to rent me a room for a thousand dollars a month. This included cable, internet, and all utilities, and he had a cleaning service.
5: (laughs) Did I skip a date?
7: I pointed out I lived in Portsmouth. I liked it there, and my job was in Kittery. So I wasn't interested. He just couldn't believe I would pass up such a deal. We weren't even dating yet. This was the first date. Maybe he'd already made a decision about us, and he was moving on, but he figured I could still live with him. Or, or maybe he had other arrangements in mind. I was getting a little annoyed with this walk in the woods. Had it been up to me, I would have been, have simply memorized the trail and found my way out. I don't need breadcrumbs, a long string, or a GPS. If I don't have a map, I keep my eye on the landmarks, just stick to my right, to my left. Bob, who had owned several businesses in his career and currently owned a summer home in a nudist camp, a horse farm in Florida, A sailboat and a canary yellow motorcycle was lost behind his own house. (laughs) Finally, finally we found our way out by following a trail into someone's backyard. One of those double wides you see so much of in New Hampshire with trash all over the place, broken down vehicles and a Rand Paul sign out front. (laughs) We might have been shot, but lucky for us, no one was home. (laughs) the road from the double wide there was a small mansion probably the home of a Romney Republican with a a great view of the White Mountains a view that Bob did not have at his house and never would as we were saying our goodbyes in his garage he brought out a big floppy hairy thing and waved it around a little my horse's tail he explained (laughs) I really miss him (laughs) I guess I was supposed to be impressed with his deep feelings and I'm sure he had them I was hoping Bob was not the train wreck that he was. It wasn't that he was going to uh, broke that made him a train wreck. It was his self-centered, weepy attitude. I've been through a lot of tough times in my life, but I wouldn't spend two hours with a total stranger going over the details. And and Bob isn't the first guy who needed to tell me his whole life story. Nearly every guy I've I've met since I turned 40 seems to think this is what he's got to do. Now it's true, it's true. Now I want to, I want to hear their views on politics, the environment, and what they like to do in their spare time. After all, I'm looking for a relationship, not a subject for a biographical novel. And and Bob's not the only guy who tried to rent me a room during a date. I'm not really There's several. Another guy had a mini mansion with docking rights on Lake Winnipesaukee. Nice place. And he had a vacant bedroom in his house. I could have that. And if I made more money, I could move up to his bedroom. (laughs) (laughs) It's income related. (laughs) Bob was also thinking of selling everything he had and just live on a sailboat, in Florida mostly. Maybe I'd come with him. He was hopeful. And this is Typical. A lot of these guys are trying to get back to the 60s, driving their hippie vans across the country, flowers in their hair, or what's left of it. One, one guy told me he was sick of living in Maine and he kind of randomly picked out a town in Northern California and he was moving there. And he wanted a woman to come with him. Another guy was moving from New Hampshire to Arizona and another was going to Pennsylvania as soon as this divorce was final, which was going to take a while. And and in the meantime, we could date. He wrote me this long, sensitive email, and when I said, I wasn't sure if I wanted to date someone who was moving away, he told me I was manipulative and controlling. (laughs) I'm not kidding you they couldn't just move to where they wanted to go and hunt down a woman there? They needed a maid to cook and clean up camp on the way, keep them company when it got dark? And, and maybe you're thinking, I'm a heartless woman.
5: That's, that's not it.
7: For 18 years, for 18 years, I worked in compensation and employment. I interviewed hundreds of men about their jobs and what they did all day. I asked them about their educations, their goals for the future, their dreams as young men. I needed this information and I thought it was very interesting. (laughs) I got my pages mixed up. And believe me, these men treated me with respect. Of course, I was really the first step in getting a raise (laughs) or not getting laid off in the next budget year. It's true, getting hired, whatever. The men I worked with also showed me respect, most of them. (laughs) graduate school with these guys. They knew me. I didn't always give them what they wanted, but they could trust me. They knew I knew what what I was doing. And again, I had a lot of power. I did the budget. (laughs) But when I go out on a date, it's completely different. Suddenly, I'm just a dumb woman who needs (laughs) guidance. I'm a sponge to sop up the pain and anger of a middle-aged man. (laughs) and maybe move in with him, help with the bills, or pull up whatever stakes I have and leave town with him. And you know what this is? This is not in my job description as an educated middle-aged woman. Sorry guys. Sometimes I wonder what happened to Bob. Our date was like a comedy sketch from Saturday Night Live. All those grassy clearings with the deer stands overhead. Bob pouring out his soul carrying a useless GPS, me smiling away but thinking, what a jerk, this isn't sailing.
9: (laughs) A a comedy
7: sketch maybe, but a dark, sad comedy. (laughs) Two people lost in the woods, walking in circles, just trying to find their way out.
5: (laughs)
3: There's a few people in the audience who can identify.
5: <laughs> David
3: Trainer is coming up next. He's a, a retired Unitarian Universalist minister, and uh, he and his wife, Lisa, an acupuncturist, founded Gentle Currents Wellness Center in Greenland. David's a production assistant to True Tales Radio, uh, and along with Sue Kaufman, he co-chairs the Portsmouth Poet Laureate Program. I just want to tell you, one of his claims to fame is that he can recite Dylan Thomas's entire prose poem, A Child's Christmas in Wales, by heart. That's pretty impressive, Ooh. huh? <laughs> his story tonight is a most unusual tru- um, has a most unusual tr- truth about one of his very first weddings, long ago. Before many of you were born, David had, his, or so he says, I don't know about this crowd, David.
7: <laughs>
3: David had his first ministry in, in a Philadelphia church, and well, I'll let you tell the rest, David, of your story, Wed for Life. You
10: have three minutes. So, they do with
0: the poetry. <laughs> so, now for something completely different. <laughs> it was early winter in 1976. Many of you were not born yet, I know, but it was early winter 1976. <clears throat> I was a brand new Unitarian Universalist minister. I'd just been called to my first post as the Director of re- Religious Education for the Unitarian Society of Germantown in Northwest Philadelphia. I was sitting at my desk when the phone rang. It was Vic Carpenter, who was the senior minister at the Distinguished Downtown Church, First Unitarian Church of Philadelphia. David, I need a favor. Now you have to consider my position. Here was Vic Carpenter on the line, a well-known, beloved, quite successful, established minister in a large, successful Unitarian Universalist congregation calling me to ask a favor of me. What would you do? I said, anything at all. Just ask, of course. I'll have to check with Arthur, the senior minister at our church, but I'd be glad to do whatever you want. It's a little bit of an unusual request. Okay, I'm signed up to do this wedding in about six weeks and a church event has come up that I just can't miss. I have to be there. So I was wondering if you would take the wedding for me. Okay, now you need to understand the context for this. In my four years in seminary, I'd done exactly two weddings. And among the things that I was most nervous about as a brand new minister in the church were doing weddings and funerals. And here was one of the two, doing a wedding. Okay, and what's unusual about it is not just that it's coming up fairly soon, Vic said. The groom is in prison. Okay, I seem to be saying okay a lot. Okay, what's he in prison for? murder. Murder? Yes, uh, but he didn't kill anybody. Um, he was convicted under law at the time that since he was the <clears throat> driver of the getaway car under Pennsylvania law, he was guilty uh, for, for the entire crime and had to, was sentenced to life in prison. <clears throat> but he didn't do the the crime and he, he, uh, he didn't kill anybody, and he and his uh, fiance want to get married on the date that they first met, which is coming up in about six weeks. I'll send you her information. No fax, no text, no email. I send you her information in a letter. You can call her and arrange a meeting and plan and, and do the wedding. Okay. Gee. Thanks, David. You're a lifesaver. And he hung up. <laughs> What had I got myself into? The letter arrived two days later and I called the uh, bride on the phone and arranged to meet with her. She didn't have a car, so I drove my 1971 VW bus over to her apartment in central Philadelphia (laughs) and met with her. She seemed nice enough and right away my first thought and my question out of the box was, can you uh, explain this? Ten years ago, the state of Pennsylvania developed a brand new program called Pen Pals for Prisoners. And the idea was that people on the outside would become pen pals and randomly assigned to inmates. Then they would exchange letters. Uh, She was randomly assigned to the man who she was now engaged to marry. And they began to correspond. And over a period of time, their correspondence got more intimate. Eventually, they had a visitation. Uh, they drew closer together, and they fell in love. But, of course, there was no possible future for their love. He was in prison. somewhat as Vic had explained, <clears throat> he was involved in a bungled burglary in which two people were shot and killed. And because of the state law at the time, he was sentenced to <clears throat> prison for life so uh, there was no possibility of parole. They engaged in sharing letters with one another and visitations back and forth over the course of about two or three years. And then somehow, she never explained exactly how this happened, he escaped, and the two of them fled to the west coast or somewhere out west where they lived under assumed identities for six or seven years. When he made a mistake and he confided in someone that he should not have confided in about the nature of his true identity and, and what he was doing out there. Uh, the police got wind of this. They came to the, where they were living and arrested them, and he was extradited back to Philadelphia, put back in prison where he was serving his life sentence. <clears throat> okay, I said to the bride. So why are you having this wedding now? Well... When I got back to Philadelphia, right away I contacted legal aid and I talked to a lawyer who explained to me that while we were on the run for the last six or seven years, the state of Pennsylvania had changed the law and it was no longer possible for someone who was simply driving a getaway car but wasn't involved in any shooting or killings to be convicted and put away for life. Uh, It was considered aiding and abetting and there was an entirely different standard. So the lawyer believed that... he could um, petition the court uh, to have the nature of the conviction changed, the sentence decreased to time served plus maybe two or three years, and then he'd be out. They were so excited, once they learned about this possibility, that they wanted to be married, and they wanted to be married on the date that they had first met for that first visitation, which was in about six weeks. Okay, I said. (laughs) Let's plan a wedding. So I called the the uh, lawyer who was, she was working with and <clears throat> we arranged to meet at the prison. The prison was a penitentiary located in northeastern Philadelphia and it looked like something out of a medieval gothic novel. It had huge high stone walls with turrets on top and <clears throat> lots of barbed wire all over everywhere. I had never seen something like that It looked, I was nervous just looking at it. And in in point of fact, three years after the wedding, I learned the thing was so rotten and run down that they closed it for good and forever. So we went in to uh, to meet with the groom. Um, I was frisked. The lawyer was frisked. And they had to bring a matron over from the women's prison to frisk the bride. And we were ushered into what they called a library. Now the library was a little more than a large walk-in closet. It had several sort of falling-down bookshelves on one side, an old beat-up table, uh, some torn-up books, and <clears throat> some uh, stuffed chairs with the stuffing was ripped and coming out of them. And that where we were, was where we were met. They were good enough to unshackle the groom, but there were of course three guards in the room with us. So it really wasn't exacting your typical wedding planning meeting. <laughs> <laughs> it was more of a meet and greet. Um... We came to realize that the, uh, he came to realize that the bride and I would plan the wedding. The first time he would hear the vows that he would be saying was when we were in the ceremony itself. And I said, "Repeat after me." There weren't going to be any maids of, maid of honor. There weren't going to be any bridesmaids. There weren't going to be any groomsmen. The lawyer was going to serve as the best man, and so the entire wedding party consisted of the bride, the groom, the lawyer, best man, me, and the warden. That was the wedding party. So the day of the wedding came, and I drove my VW bus over to her apartment to pick her up. It was a cold February, drizzly uh, day. And we drove over to (laughs) to the prison for the wedding. And the wedding was going to take place in this, well, it was sort of an odd combination of a gymnasium and an auditorium. They used to have them in schools like this. You may know about them. There were basketball baskets on one end, and a stage on the other, and you could use the room either way. So we'll call it an auditorium. So they had cleared the auditorium. There were some guards standing around the edges, and in the middle, as sort of a, an island, separated from everything else by about 50 feet, were two rows of uh, columns of chairs. They were these old, tiny chairs that you used to see in school assemblies. They were made of wooden slats. They, fold, they could fold up, and they, they came in pairs, right? So you had two pairs. So you had six pairs with a small aisle in between. At the head of the aisle was an old tired table. And on the table was a Bible, open to a page at random, and two candlesticks uh, without any candles, because of course, candles could be lit and turned into weapons, I guess. So So candlesticks without any weapons. And the, the warden and some of the guards ushered us into this strange space, where the wedding was to take place. And finally, we all assembled the groom, the bride, the lawyer, best man, me, and the warden standing by the side of the table. And I began the wedding ceremony. Now, what would you do in a setting like this? I mean, think about the classic opening of a classical wedding. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here in the sight of God and this company to join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony didn't quite work in that setting. (laughs) I was nervous. I was petrified. I was scared. I didn't know what to do. I couldn't see how anything good could possibly come out of this. (laughs) But I was ready to go. I was prepared. And I started the ceremony. I did a short reading. And I did a homily in which I talked about the fact that (laughs) the future was open, the future was not fixed in stone, and there were Uh, possibilities for a good and uh, (coughs) wonderful life there were possibilities for a future together. After that uh, after the homily was over uh, they exchanged vows repeat after me they exchanged rings (coughs) I declared them to be husband and wife they kissed and the ceremony as far as it went was over (coughs) the the, uh, warden and the guard (coughs) uh, ushered us into the Library again, where the bride and groom had to sign the wedding license in in Pennsylvania. At that time, they had to sign. I signed the wedding license as well, and so did the lawyer as the witness. And then, really, the whole thing was over. Um, There was no honeymoon, of course, and the the uh, groom was not able to keep his ring. He got to wear it for maybe five minutes because a ring could be turned into a shiv and used as a weapon. So he had to give that up. As we were leaving, just before we left, the groom and bride looked at each other. They kissed once, and she said to him, I love you, and I'll be back at our regular time and day for visitation. And then just before the guards led him away and we turned to go, they looked at each other again, and this huge smile spread across their faces. He was led off to the... Prison. We left at the at the penitentiary gates. The lawyer and the two of us parted company. I drove the bride home to her apartment. I drove home myself, and that was the end of the story. About a year later, I was called for my vert to be my very first parish ministry in Farmington Hills, Michigan. <clears throat> I had actually lived in Philadelphia for a fairly short time, and I never had to go any occasion to go back, although Philadelphia is a wonderful city. I never heard from them again. I never learned what became of them, what their story was or how their lives turned out. But I did come to a conclusion, and I learned something. The conclusion was this. If Vic Carpenter ever asked you to do anything <laughs> for any reason without fully explaining what it is in its entirety, don't say yes until you know. (laughs) On a somewhat more serious note, I learned something about myself and the human spirit. What I learned is that this couple actually listened to and heard what I was saying. They believed in their possibilities. They actually thought that they had a future together as a couple. And my problem was that they had more faith in what I had said than I had had faith in myself. So in the end, they got married in prison. But they wed for life, and I learned, just began to learn, what it meant to truly be a minister.
3: Thank you, David. Sharon Rhodes is up next. She works and lives in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, where she's currently looking for the ultimate studio apartment. (laughs) (laughs) Anybody out there got some suggestions? (laughs) Get in touch. Sharon's favorite thing to do is to spend time with her grandson, Jacob, who is always in the present moment. It's a great thing about kids. Tonight, she'll take us back to a moment in her own childhood when she and her brother, eight and five years old, concocted a cover-up story about the accidental death of Smokey the parakeet. <laughs> the title of this escapade gone wrong is Don't Take the Bird Out Until It's Done. <sighs>
10: I'm a little thrown because I didn't know until a few days ago that there wasn't going to be any more true tales. So, my story, well, it's kind of a eulogy now, so I'm going to do it anyway. (laughs) But I love how the stories all meld together. I love, I'm still working on my post chemotherapy hair. Yours looks great. And now you have a new dating website, Prison. And I'm pretty sure they can't ask you to move in with them.
7: (laughs) I already, I've decided they're all, they're all (laughs) ex-cons. They're They're prisoners of their own souls.
10: (laughs) (laughs) And you showed us, you know, how to get there. And I didn't know there was going to be a Unitarian minister present when I was Mm -hmm. doing the eulogy, but I'm going to do it anyway and (laughs) read my story in. Forgive me. Um, I already confessed in there. That's right. Yes, I did. I did. Poems, funerals, and plagiarism, Vicki, while we were being interviewed because, you know, it was confession at the same time. So, (laughs) let me see what I can do. I have a quote because it's, I'm eulogizing, and it's from uh, Clarissa Pincoli Estes Stories are medicine. They have such power. They do not require that we do, be, act anything. We need only listen. The remedies for repair or reclamation of any lost psychic drive are contained in stories. Don't take my picture, Sylvia.
5: (laughs) Don't want to be on Facebook.
10: Okay, so my brother and I, he was five-ish, I was eight-ish, and we were home alone. And my sister, who's in the audience, was ten and had a pet parakeet the pet
5: <laughs> not yet
10: and his name was Smokey put your phone down really I don't like that um, so she had this parakeet and he was up in a cage in fact I'm pretty sure I remember I had to climb up in a chair because you know of course it was my idea Bill was five my brother and Vicky used to take him out and she would share him with us And she would put him on her finger and show how, you know, you can get him to climb up your finger if you just stroke their breast. And then he'll, you know, I loved it. I thought it was great. So I was like, I'm going to take him out, and we're going to play with him. So I take him, I climb up in a chair, open the cage. He gets on my finger, and I take him out, and I get down with Bill. And I'm like, look, let's do that. And he's doing it. and, And something spooks him, and he takes off, and he goes into the curtains there's curtains he lands in the curtains it's all a whirlwind it's just a whirlwind and then he drops down on I'm now like I gotta get him put him back in before dad or mom or whoever is watching us comes home and I get down and he and he's on the floor and we have a big china hutch and it's a room divider and on the other side of it is a high chair but he runs under that hutch and so I run around to the other side to catch him when he comes out but he doesn't come out And so I I go, I get down and while I'm rewriting this story, I'm taking care of my very good friend's dogs just a few weeks ago and the dog goes in, the dog comes out when I get there. She's a lovely little Shih Tzu and she goes outside and she comes right back. Well, I'm writing this story. So the dog disappears around a rock and in the bushes and I... Go outside and and the dog is not coming out. I'm like, oh my god! And all I can think of is the parakeet didn't come out. Now the dog is not coming out. I'm like, oh my god! I'm freaking out. I'm like, Keisha, come out! And she and she's just hiding in the bushes. And I go and get her. And I'm like, oh my god! You can't go out again. That's not going to happen. I'm I'm all paranoid now. So, but anyway, I'm looking at I'm looking waiting for him to come out. He doesn't come out. So I get down on my hands and knees and I'm looking, and I and I. And I see him laying down. I've never seen a bird lay down before. And he's not moving. So I reach under, and I pick him up, and he's limp. I mean, he's done. I didn't know dead, just from cartoons. <laughs> he's done for. So I'm I'm holding him, and his little head is hanging, and I'm just like, oh, my, and I'm eight. I don't know what to do. And my brother's like, what, what? I go, he's done, he's done. And then I thought, oh, my God, you know. For whatever reason, I'm so was totally in a panic, and I say, like, oh, "I'm going to put him back in the cage and don't say anything. Don't say anything. I'm just going to put him back in a cage, lay him on the floor, and don't say anything when Vicky and Dad or don't Bill, don't say anything. We just put him in. I put him and laid him down, just, and closed the little door, and then we sat down and pretended to watch TV. <laughs> and then I don't know how long. I'm not even going to guesstimate. Try to remember memory is subjective anyway so in comes Vicky and my father and the minute they get in the house Bill goes Vicki look at your bird it's done <laughs> and I don't remember I do remember it wasn't a teachable moment <laughs> but I don't remember much of what happened after that but my brother Bill and I were we had many adventures for forty, forty some odd years. Very close, good friends. Well, but anyway, my father did tell him and Vicky that what probably happened was the bird ran under that hutch that was separating the rooms, and the high chair was next to it. And the high chair, the, the hutch was this high, and the high chair was like that. And he, my father, said the bird ran into it, broke his neck. So, who knows? But my brother, who I had many wonderful adventures with, passed away two years ago at 57. You know, we think we have all this time. It's just normal, you know, but we don't. I tend to think my brother ran into the high chair of heartbreak one too many times. But that's the way the story goes. That's how I remember it. And several years ago, I replaced Smokey, as you can see. He's perfectly fine.
1: <laughs> Can you hear
10: him? Aww.
1: He really looked like this. Too. He looked just like <laughs> it. He it yeah.
5: He's all
10: better now.
5: <laughs>
10: He's all better. And I wanted to end.
7: Uh-uh.
10: I'll shut him up.
5: <laughs>
7: <laughs> oh look at, She holds him up like that. <laughs>
10: So I tried my best to make it up. So I would like to sing and have you guys join me in singing a song for John, please. And if you all know it, just let's sing it three times. Three is a magic number. Ready? (laughs) Enjoy yourself. It's later than you think. Enjoy yourself while you're still in the pink. The years go by As quickly as you blink Enjoy yourself, enjoy yourself It's later than you think Enjoy yourself Clap. It's later than you think Enjoy yourself While you're still in the pink The years go by as quickly as you blink. Enjoy yourself, enjoy yourself, it's later
5: than you
10: think. Thank you, Cheetails. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Steve.
2: I'm gonna do this first, then we'll get to that. Okay? So. Thank you all, what a great night. Wonderful storytellers and wonderful audience that really participated tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Lots was asked of you, we appreciate it. We also want to thank our underwriters for tonight's program. Jan Hansen, who believes in the unique value of having an independent community radio station in the seacoast. Pat Spaulding, who believes in stories for grown-ups on True Tales Radio and is curious to know, hey, what's your story? And Emily Spaulding, author of Red Clay Girl, who believes that when you share your story, you never know who you might be. Thanks to our MC, Pat Spaulding, our promotional assistant and photographer, Steve Koval, our technical assistant, John Nash, our production assistant, David Frainer, and our producer, John Lovering. Also thanks to Bill Humphreys and Chad Cordner and everyone at PPM-TV for collaborating with us to bring True Tales to PPM-TV. Come on up, Pat. I think we're ready. We have a little more to say to you tonight. Um, So folks see Pat and I up here a lot, or hear us out there. So we are the faces or the voices of True Tales Radio. But the truth is John Lovering is our founder, He's, of course, the producer, and he's been something of the backbone of True Tales Radio. And this is his last show with us. I actually worked with John for about 14 years here at WSCA. I'm going to truly miss working with him. John, to me, sort of embodies the spirit of community radio as more than most people I know. Where is he? there
3: is um and I have uh, worked with John for less time I came on board with this show True Tales Radio on its first broadcast I was fortunate enough to just see a little notice storytellers wanted I showed up
5: <laughs>
3: in uh, January of 2014 and I've been to like just about every single show since I, think, I don't think I've missed any um Certainly we'll miss John. Uh, But that said, the future of True Tales Radio is a little murky right now, but we're not saying goodbye to the program. We are just may reformulate a little bit. Um, We're not sure exactly what's going to happen when this fall, but we're just here to uh, share that as a community. I want you to know that there are two opportunities to see True Tales on stage coming up. And the first one, uh, they'll both be at West Theater right next door. Um, they're both on Sundays this fall at 2 p.m. And the first one is on September 25th, Sunday, 2 p.m., West Theater. We'll have a lineup of storytellers. If you're on my mailing list, you'll find out more of the the who's in particulars. There will be reminders. The second one is October 16th, Sunday, 2 p.m., same thing. Um, and you're all invited to come, bring your friends, more stories, True Tales Radio, and you might get the poop about what's coming down next.
2: You do want to get tickets for that. It sold oh, out true. pretty <laughs> early last time. They were turning a lot of people away. So what's the, the website? Do you know? It's
3: Act One of uh, Festival, uh, Fall Festival, but if Act One New Hampshire, if you look that up on the Internet, then you'll get all the... The particulars about that. A C T O N E N H, I think. You'll find it. All right, so. Maybe it's New England, sorry. I think it's any N-E. New England. Well, whatever. Google it. Google it.
5: You have
2: the tools.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and that should be enough. All right, sorry though.
2: Um, okay, so John is going to say a few words to conclude. Um, but First, just please join us in what we think will be fitting for our um, sound engineer and audio person a good, loud um, sound version of thanks. those of you in the non-studio listening audience, John will say a few more words to you. Take it away, John.
9: Thank you very much, and thank you so much to the audience and Amy and Pat. Um, uh, Ladies and gentlemen, with tonight's True Tales Radio, I conclude my association with WSCA. It's been nearly a 13-year role that I'm grateful for having the opportunity to fulfill. As I leave Portsmouth Community Radio, I want to thank Pat Spaulding, Amy Antonucci, Steve Carville, Rocky Smith, Gene Gagney, Steve Diamond, and of course my audio theater co-host John Nash for being part of the best team anyone could have had to make True Tales Radio such a successful program. I also want to thank the co-hosts of Don't Diss my Ability that broadcast its last show here on WSCA earlier this afternoon, Ronnie Tamanio, Pamela Sollenberger, and Lee Harvey, with past co-hosts Allie Ketchum, John Eubanks, and Mike St. Cyr, who at one point was our very own hippy-dippy weatherman. And within the past several months, Sean Henderson, who put the show on local cable TV and YouTube, thank you, Sean, for helping to spread the good that Don't Dis My Ability had to share. Having a program that was targeted to those living with disabilities and those who love and care for them was a very special honor that I shared with these wonderful people for seven years, people who I'm proud to call my friends. And then there is Audio Theater, which began on September 29, 2004, and over the last nearly 12 years produced 620 programs Only missed six shows in the entire run, five due to inclement weather and one because I was in the hospital. I tried to come, but they wouldn't let me. Last July, John Nash joined me as a talented and creative co-host and I leave the show in his capable hands and wish him all the success possible. Finally, I want to thank uh, the approximately 80 members of our audio theater players who have, in the last 12 years, participated in the production of 55 recreations of classic radio programming, ending last Tuesday with an original play, "Something in the Nothing" by Nicholas Conley, and a reenactment of the comedy "My Favorite Husband." If you missed our last live performance last week, you missed a truly fantastic show. Check out the audio archives. Audio theater. Don't dis my ability. True Tales Radio. Three shows that I had the privilege to produce, engineer, and/or host. All three brought members of the community into their community station and provided information and entertainment to a diverse community of listeners online and over the airways. I thank you for the opportunity to participate in fulfilling the mission statement of Portsmouth Community Radio, which is to operate a nonprofit, listener-supported, volunteer-driven, non-commercial FM radio station dedicated to serving the greater Portsmouth community. Portsmouth Community Radio broadcasts diverse, and alternative programming, which is primarily produced locally and reflects the cultural, educational, artistic, civic, and business fabric of our listening community. It is my sincere hope that we will live up to that mission statement far into the future. This is John Lovering for WSCALP 106.1 FM, Portsmouth Community Radio, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, saying good evening and goodbye, and wishing those of you in the seacoast and beyond the very best.